You're listening to Don't Tell the Easter Bunny, a podcast celebrating the unsung festivities that won't be found on any normal calendar. This show is presented by a mother-son duo who like to keep it safe for work. I'm Bryce, the son. I'm Misty, the mom. And you can reach out to us at Don't Tell the Easter Bunny for Instagram and Facebook, and at Don't Tell the EAS1 for Twitter. Or you can email us at don'ttelltheeasterbunny at gmail.com. No special characters or spaces. Okay, let's hop to it. Hi, everyone, and welcome back to Don't Tell the Easter Bunny. We're rounding off July with two dates. I have Uncommon Instrument Awareness Day on July 31st. Well, I also have a July 31st day, which is National Avocado Day. Ooh. We've been hitting each other's, like, same dates <laughs> very well lately. <laughs> yeah, once again, we don't really tell each other what we're picking out or any of the facts. So, yeah, some of the times we actually end up with the same dates. So, you said I could go first, right? Yeah, well, it seems like I always go first. So, this case... This is the same day. You can go first. Okay. Let's do it. For National Avocado Day, again, July 31st, it seemed like a really cool day to check out only because I knew like the kind of legendary story behind the name of avocado, which we'll be getting into. But after reading that, I was like, okay, what else is there about avocados to look up? You know, you can look up like, facts and statistics about you know nutrients or about how they sell but I actually found a lot of interesting history related to prehistory and pre-Columbian history and then kind of going into like the cultural sphere that was built around avocados in America so that's kind of like an overview of what we'll be going through. Okay, this kind of intrigues me. Now, I do not like avocados, as you know. I know. So that. that would not be like my favorite day, but um, seems like you're coming from a weird and different angle here for avocados. It's for the non-sinners who love avocados like me and for the sinners like you. <laughs> Are you? I, I, you know what? No comment. Okay, to be fair, I was looking up about avocados, right, of course, and it came up with there being actually more than just, like, the typical avocado we see, the Haas avocado or the Haas avocado, if you want to go with the more proper way to pronounce it. It's actually named after a guy named Haas. So, um, but I'm going to be saying Haas throughout because that's just how I do it. Move, mauve, tomato, tomato, it's all up to you. It's, they're all based around fruits, you know, the question of how to pronounce them. (laughs) Banana or banana? Well, I don't know. Now that (laughs) one might be stretching it. Well, um, but I found actually a lot of people are not, okay, not a lot, a lot, but there is still a majority, not majority, what am I looking for? A population of people who actually don't like the Haas avocados and prefer other varieties, such as the Fuerte or the green avocado. But unlike me, I just don't like avocado, and it doesn't matter what variety. Is it because of the texture? <laughs> yes, it is a texture thing. Oh, Isn't sad. the flavor? It's just I cannot stand the texture. Oh, well, okay, then pay attention to the 
other things I'm going to be talking about that are now associated <laughs> with the, you know, creamy, buttery f- texture of it all. So when we're talking about avocados, they're actually very interesting as a plant because they are known as an evolutionary anachronism or more popularly called a ghost of evolution. So that's because the tree, avocado tree, was adapted. So the reason why the avocado tree is a ghost of evolution is a ghost of evolution is because the avocado tree adapted its fruit to be consumed by larger animals, namely larger mammals. Those would be mammoths, giant sloths, or even jaguars from about 10,000 or 13,000 years ago. But those mammals have gone extinct, obviously, since then. So we're still kind of wondering how the avocado tree still survived before it was cultivated by humans. And that's because over the 10,000 years since the mammals were around to when humans started cultivating the fruit, there were no animals really to perpetrate the uh, seed growing process. No, go ahead, eat the fruit and uh, bring the seed with you wherever you are, let it out and fertilize it, and then it would grow. But there was no animal capable of doing that, mainly due to its size. When it came to the larger mammals, they could just eat an avocado as they would like maybe like a cherry. It was a rather small snack to them, and uh, the uh, balls were would not you know choke them if it got into them. But if you're talking about humans or cats or dogs or any other kind of creature critter (laughs) out there in the past few hundred years they're you know they had the choking hazard as an issue they also had an issue of the seed itself has a toxin known as pezrin and it is toxic to a lot of different animals for the most part it's like cows and birds for dogs and cats they kind of have found like uh, debated research as to if a dog were to eat a seed, if it's actually fully intoxicated or not. I would recommend not giving your animals at least the seed. I've also seen a lot of people saying that's okay to give the flesh to them, like it is for humans, you know. You don't really want the seed in you, but the flesh is okay. I find that interesting because that is definitely a form of seed dispersal and just nature. But you know, thinking about it, I guess I've never thought about an avocado because when like bears, let's say, you know, eat berries or something like that and they do poop it out, you know, but that's the way of getting the seeds to other places. I would have never thought about eating a avocado pick because they're huge. But again, it's because, you know, they're huge to us, but for other animals, they are much larger, or they were much larger. I guess I guess if a bear were to eat it, it's definitely bigger and got a bigger belly than us, but that is a weird thought, because I, yeah, I tend to think more peach pits or uh, cherries or just smaller seeds and pits. Right, it's like relative to the size of the animal, yeah. and rhinos are actually pretty adept to eat um avocados or fruits like it so there are other fruits that are 
ghosts of evolution which would be like papaya and mangoes so they're basically plants that have adapted for one mutual relationship with like a group of animals to help you know with their seed dispersal but due to extinction or just to absence of those animals where other plants would have adapted to reduce their size or to modify it for the other creatures around their environment avocados said no we're not doing that so again it's kind of weird that they even survived for as long as they have so do you think the animals do like what we talked about with cherry pit spitting (laughs) and occasionally just you know see how far they can spit the avocado pit maybe possibly why not they need to have fun too So that's like the prehistoric kind of information that I brought to the table. Now we're kind of going to go more into like the pre-Columbian era. So we're talking about Mesoamerican societies. And it was the Aztecs were the Aztecs. I don't know what the correct. It was. It was. There we go. Okay. Yeah. (laughs) So it was the Aztecs and the Incans who spread out as far north as Mexico and as far south as Peru that cultivated the plant. Archaeological discoveries have found domesticated seeds from 750 BCE in Incan tombs, which might actually contradict the known historical account of Incans coming into contact with these seeds. I'll talk a little bit about that in a second. But also around 500 BC are when we start seeing seeds being cultivated in Mexico. So when it came to both cultures... The fruit and its tree were related to fertility and partnership. Avocado trees naturally do not self-pollinate, so they need to grow in pairs. Since then, you know, we also bought an avocado tree that self-pollinates. So with like the genetic modification and grafting and all that, you can. But if you were to find any wild avocado trees, not so much. You know, I find it interesting that you bring up about that they had to do with fertility and all that because when we were in uh, Belize, it was Belize or the Maya, well, the Mayan area, a lot of what they talked about, yeah, it was Belize because we were in the, the river. They really talked about the river going into the different depths and all, but they also talked about constantly how there was uh, fertility and how nature dealt with fertility and different things that they would do, hopefully, you know, in um, if they were having problems bearing a child or something like that. So it's interesting that the Aztecs um, and Incas that you're saying would really kind of grab on to the avocado. Well, there, so you have the, you know, growing of the trees and pears next to each other, but also, so the original name for an avocado in the Waddle language, which is a subgroup of the Aztecs, is uh, Awakatal. <laughs> I'm tra- I put down the pronunciations because <laughs> I'm like, I'm not going to get these at all correct. Um, but Awakatal actually translates to the male g- <laughs> Okay. <laughs> and this is due to its droop-like shape so okay, I think we're, uh, you know I think we need to change the subject here okay, okay. <laughs> well then let's start talking about when the Spaniards actually got to Central America South America and all that 
when they started making their explorations here, they took note of the fruit and they actually were big fans of it. They were comparing it to the fruit in, you know, Spain and talking about the differences between the avocado and European oranges and pears. And pear is interesting because it actually connects to other cultures too when it comes to naming this fruit. Um, So though Mexico is claimed as the homeland of avocados, the first European report of the fruit came from an explorer off the coast of Colombia. And the second report historically is also from Ecuador. So I thought that was kind of interesting that like for a while that the avocado was more associated with South America and maybe even like where Panama is, so just around there and Ecuador and all that. But Mexico wasn't involved in that. Um, And for French, they have the word avocat, which means avocado, or it can mean lawyer, an attorney, something like that. And I think the Spanish also has something related to it, but they have changed it a bit. English's first name given to the fruit that endured until the early 1900s, known as the alligator pear. And it was a term coined by Sir Henry Sloane in 1696. So that was the first mention in literature when it came to uh, the English-speaking world. And there's, although you have aguacate as avocado in Spanish, there's a second word for avocado in Spanish. Um, It is palta, where aguacate finds its roots in the Aztec tradition, Palta finds its roots in the Inca history, Incan history. Reportedly, the Incan leader Tupac Yupanqui had come back to Peru from the Ecuadorian north after a conquest in the mid to late 1400s. The land he had conquered was the territory of the Palta people who cultivated the fruit, and so the Spanish that's spoken in Chile, Colombia, Peru, mainly like the northwest of South America, they all prefer to use the word Palta. To mean avocado. So even though we had, no, or I should say Europeans, had known about the avocado since late 1500s, definitely into, you know, mid 1600s and 1700s, it wasn't until 1870 that a judge by the name R.B. Ord had actually brought avocado trees and that put them into an established area in California. So for the most part, the U.S. hadn't known about the existence of an avocado. And hereafter, more enterprisers were buying Mexican stock of avocado trees and planting them throughout Southern California. So I'm to assume that these trees are all produced from the Fuerte variety, which was very common at the time in Mexico. They are a skinnier in size avocado, and uh, they are actually still popular throughout the world as well. Um, and I also kind of want you to... All right, when you picture an avocado, what do you actually see? Well, usually they're green. Okay, usually, right? Yeah, usually. Uh, they aren't particularly big. They aren't, you know, they aren't small like a cherry or something, but they aren't huge mm-hmm. um not like a watermelon <laughs> i guess when i see it 
you know, just like if I see it in a commercial or just sitting there, I tend to think of Mexican stuff. I don't know if that's not good because that's stereotyping. And um, but think of guacamole and uh, Cinco de Mayo, things like that. I think it's interesting that you pointed out not just the physical description of the fruit, but also kind of what it's associated with, like you're saying with Mexican style cuisine and uh, guacamole and all that, because you're not, uh, <laughs> you know, inappropriate in pointing <laughs> that out because uh, there has been a lot of marketing in the past hundred years that have been done to make you think this way even by a lot of the uh, trade between Mexico. So at this time in the early 1900s, I want you to picture something a little bit bigger than what we typically think of as an avocado, the Haas avocado, right? The black, purplish looking kind of guy. So he's a little bit bigger than that. He maybe has less of a bumpy skin and it's completely green no matter what season it is so that's important when it comes to like the mid-century uh marketing and campaigning for avocados and yeah i'll i'll get to that in a second here (laughs) so by 1914 the sale of avocados and what i would assume to be also avocado tree stocks from mexico had halted And that's because an infestation of seed weevils was rampant throughout Mexico's orchards, and the United States placed a ban on all importations. So it wasn't until 83 years later was the ban lifted in 1997, and U.S. citizens could shop Mexican avocados again. But we still had avocados, and that's because of the ones that were brought up in Southern California. So, again, it was unfortunate for Mexican vendors, but it was actually very good for Californian orchards because they could catch up economically. Um, They had time to start planting and building out their acreage. And California farmers also took it upon themselves to rebrand the avocado, first with the name. So, like, kind of the next few paragraphs I'm going to be reading off of my script notes are mainly taken or all taken from i'm sorry from an atlantic article talking about the pr history of the avocado and uh, i'll be paraphrasing and quoting it from here on out until we talk about (laughs) about a character named mr ripe so uh (laughs) just understand that all these quotes will be coming directly from this article so the reason why i bring up this whole quotation you know, subject and all that is just because I also found a lot of good reactions already to start off with the name of the avocado when it came to rebranding it. And they come from the California Avocado Growers Exchange, an early 1900s trade group. Quote, The avocado, an exalted member of the Laurel family, should be called an alligator pear, is beyond all understanding. And... The name is ruining the avocado's business. So basically, a bunch of people got together and were just like, all right, we're going to start naming our product avocado instead. So up until like the 1914, 15, 17, around there, 
actually, this one I think was from 1927, the first quote. Um, people were still calling it alligator pear. And even when people implemented avocado as the name, it came out as avocado pear. There's still always this like pear uh, association to it. So following the name change, they marketed the fruit also as a luxury item. Already well-to-do people were growing the plants, so they campaigned the fruit as something elegant and upscale, and advertised it in magazines like Vogue and The New Yorker as an aristocrat of salad fruits. So beside being maligned in the 1980s by the health community for being a full-fat food item, the trickiest part about selling avocados to people outside of Southern California was teaching them what an avocado is and does. So the California Avocado Commission had to rewire people's intuition for buying fresh fruits when purchasing avocados. So this wasn't until the 80s? Yeah, 1980s. Wow. So I guess basically there was, there was a lot of research going on at this point in time where um, are you talking about the health or are you talking about the just kind of in general like rebranding it and really getting it out to the general population and what it is and i find it even interesting that it wasn't called avocado in you know the late 1800s and before early 1900s and before uh that you know it was actually called something else of course i mean we've got scientific names and then we've got regional names and things like that but for it to truly not be known as an avocado until the late 20s and then really not even be known in American culture too much to the 80s. It's just, I don't know. That's, it's astounding, that's very, right? Just, yeah. I because mean, like, you just assume avocados have been around forever and everyone knows about them. And Yeah, no, until the 19, really the 1990s is when the like different commissions and trade groups and all that start to point towards a big shift in consumers going for avocados. And it's because it's had to go through this whole, you know, like, uphill battle. Again, people didn't know it, and then they were trying to sell it to people who had money, and then the health crisis and all that. I should point out that, so from the 1950s onward, there was a big change also in how avocados were being produced. Not necessarily, like, any new type of process, but avocados went to one direct variety which is the Haas avocado so when it came to this um rebranding and all that and just everything going on in the past hundred years so like H.B. Griswold who was talking with Smithsonian Magazine said that the single disadvantage of the Haas avocado is its black color, which has been associated in the minds of the public with poor quality fruits. And so to educate the people about, you know, what's ripe and what's not, the commission made their Ripe for Tonight campaign by placing stickers right directly on the ripened avocados, the ones that had the black skin versus the green ones. I mean, like, these are the correct ones here. Um, you can have them tonight and have some good guac or something. And they would also send representatives to grocery chains to explain to the produce managers the difference between green avocados that were not ripe and the black-purple ones that were. So I had to bring up the fact that it was a Haas avocado because 
it is one of, if not the only variety that actually ripens to a kind of black color. Otherwise, other avocados still stay green when they ripen. Um, going along with the marketing history and all that, going back to what was the big turning point for avocados, 1992 saw the avocado become a national celebrity, at least in the eyes of the commissions <laughs> and all that. The Hill and Knowlton marketing firm with established California avocado groups put on the very first guacamole bowl during the Super Bowl. They had NFL stars, their families and friends, and the American public send in different guacamole recipes, and a winner would be chosen democratically. And I didn't find anything about this, but I think it was whoever was the winner of that recipe would actually have their guacamole uh be sampled at the NFL game in 1992. And I also didn't know that guacamole was such a big feature for Super Bowl. Did you know that? Well, I mean, I would think it would be because of chips and dips are big, big, you know, mm -hmm. thing during the Super Bowl. So uh, I could definitely see guacamole being a top seller uh, during, you know, that weekend and that particular day. Yeah, I mean, dips make sense. Like chips. I think chips. I think salty snacks or whatever. And then you can have, you know, a side with it. But I didn't think it was such a big deal that guacamole was associated with Super Bowl. And it still is to this day. The kind of ironically, even though the California Avocado Commission was the one who got this started, the relationship between avocados, guacamole, and uh, the Super Bowl, Mexico's Avocado Commission has actually had the upper hand in advertising during the Super Bowl since 2015. Each year, they have presented a 30-second ad related to avocados, guacamole, whatever. So I think it's kind of interesting how that got switched back and look at that because, you know, I always watch only the commercials for the Super Bowl, and I just don't remember per se Anything, anything related out of, to yeah, avocado. Well, yeah. out of a Mex especially the Mexican um, commission and stuff. So I'll have to go back and look at that. <laughs> so this comes from the California Avocado Commission's former president, who remarked, no other single American event impacts the sale of avocados like the Super Bowl. And this isn't just a 1992 uh, game. This is even up till now. So... Like, uh, when it comes to Mexico, Mexico Avocado Commission, <laughs> uh, when they are presenting an ad, they are hoping to impart an affinity for the fruit to come into the wintertime as well, or at least purchases for the wintertime. And four weeks leading up to the big game, the brand imports about 200 million pounds of avocados into the United States. Oh. Oh, that's just like a slim number, too, of how many avocados we receive, both as a whole, but also just from Mexico. I, I just think it's funny that uh, there's avocado commissions, <laughs> you know, like, 
a farming commission or something or just you know a national like usda or something yeah. like that but to have specifically yeah. an avocado commission and that, that is not just american there's one no, in mexico, mexico too i love fruit commissions <laughs> i'm not going to get into the story about the florida citrus commission until we do like an orange juice day or something but you know my love for Orange Bird <laughs> yeah. and just the convoluted history behind this Disney character working with the Florida Citrus Commission, trying to get out orange concentrate to a public who didn't like orange concentrate. <laughs> <laughs> so I guess that's kind of like what this whole or any commission probably yeah. is doing. You See, know? at least back to conspiracy again. Like I said, we can't get through any of our episodes without some kind of weird conspiracy. Yeah. I'm sure there's some avocado conspiracy then. There, I don't know if they're really conspiracies, but there are um, issues when it comes to illegal trading of avocados. Okay. <laughs> I won't really get into that, um, but there is something interesting about NAFTA. And uh, we will get to that after talking about Mr. Ripe Guy. So Mr. Ripe Guy was an iconic mascot made for the commission by the Hill and Knowlton firm. And he was a man dressed in a giant avocado suit, and he would go on to TV programs or participate in live events to promote California avocados. Why did all these places think they have to like personify you know veggies and food you got mr peanut i mean i guess like cool swag guy you know (laughs) i can really get behind him but also they were not just settled with mr ripe guy who also now thinking about it i guess is a play on words with mr right guy I guess. (laughs) I only say that because also in 1995, they explained that Mr. Ripe Guy was looking for a Miss Ripe. It's like Miss Right and all that. Okay. (laughs) Mr. Potato Head and Mrs. Potato Head. (laughs) (laughs) Exactly. Ken and Barbie. (laughs) You know, you got to have your pair. It's the avocado partnership. (laughs) Fertility and all that. (laughs) So during this contest, women sent in videotapes to prove their devotion to good health and healthy eating and have a California lifestyle. So you're being serious. They really were looking for a Mrs. Ripe. They were the Mr. Ripe. They were looking for a Miss Ripe because they weren't trying to put any ring on her. They just uh, wanted him to go on a date. And he did have a date, apparently, <laughs> with one woman who won. So I don't know where the commission is based, but what I do know is that the winner of this contest was brought out to Hollywood for free and also cameoed on Baywatch Nights. <laughs> you know. <laughs> like did any... you have to dress up like an avocado for Baywatch? I don't know. I feel like that would be a great way to do it. But at the same time, I feel like they're kind of going for, okay, if she's got to look healthy and nice looking and all that, we got to put her in a bikini or something. 
Well, let's see now. Um, I'm seeing the train <laughs> stereotypical of stereotypical here. I'm seeing the train of thought with this uh-huh. marketing campaign. But you know what? You're giving away a woman to an avocado. So I think most things traditionally are being thrown out the window. Okay. So actually what I'm visualizing now is this avocado guy. And she doesn't become an avocado. She's in her red Baywatch swimsuit uh, as the trophy wife yeah. of the avocado guy. Okay. Well, they had like, um, was it, I'm trying to remember if exactly it was like a written up recording of how the date went, but there were definitely quotes from Mr. Ripe guy and Miss Ripe about like, wanting to experience the state and how Miss Ripe was just so happy to take on the title of this name. <laughs> she was so honored. Uh, it's, you know, it's only getting worse once again. Red, tight, bathing suit, and being called Mrs. Ripe. Now, <laughs> now there's also this. They could just put an avocado in a red bathing suit. How about that? Okay. I think that makes me think of like the Hershey Kisses now. <laughs> what? Hershey Kisses wearing hats and different things and M&Ms. Oh, I can see an M&M. Yeah. I'm seeing like a sexy, the sexy green M&M, you know? <laughs> oh, boy. Well. I think we need to eat dinner. <laughs> have some avocados. <laughs> well, getting back into um, kind of like maybe putting a little bit of a damper on the whole California avocado, uh, you know, celebration (laughs) that they got going on. In 1997, the North American territories of Mexico, Canada, and the United States hammered out trade negotiations for the NAFTA agreement. California avocado sellers were not happy, and they claimed to be worried for their orchards, orchard safety indicating that the USDA couldn't protect the U.S. from infected imported produce, imported produce because they couldn't already handle it, dealing with infected produce in the borders. <laughs> um, so, like, okay, that kind of makes sense, worrying about the orchards being taken over by seed weevils. The USDA was saying that this was okay because Mexico had already been exporting their avocados to different countries in Europe and all that, and it hadn't infected anything. This is kind of where it gets a little bit weird. <clears throat> the In the same port on this NAFTA avocado upset by the LA Times, vendors also claimed that cheaper Mexican imports would give rise to a black market that would encourage illegal shipments. I don't really see how legalizing something would lead to a black market of that specific item. <laughs> I kind of like go figure on that. Yeah, I I don't know. I think they were just... Uh, it seems uh, like the opposite of what they were trying to say in all the states and places that are trying to get marijuana laws passed. Uh, yeah, yeah, if exactly. you legalize drugs, then you aren't going to have the the bad market anymore, the black market anymore. So kind of go <laughs> figure on that. I think they're just a little bit miffed about uh, their 
uh, territory being encroached on, you know, their monopoly being <laughs> torn apart. But I, so that's kind of like the history I got about avocados. But I wanted to talk a little bit more specifically about Haas avocados, Haas avocados. Um, just because they are the ones we are most familiar with in the United States. And we, it's really important to know without the Haas avocado, we also wouldn't have a year-round supply of avocados. So they are very stable shelf-prepared. And uh, not just that, they also, the trees are able to uh, flower their fruit. Is that what it's called? Bloom their fruit? <laughs> but they can produce their fruit in a larger season than other varieties. So that becomes important when you are trying to commercialize them. Haas is the most popular variety of avocado in the U.S. 95% of avocados sold in the U.S. are Haas and 80% worldwide. Three. They definitely did their... Uh, duty, I guess, with getting the word out that the black or dark avocados oh, are yeah. okay then. Yeah, there's actually, <laughs> by the 1980s and 90s, after they had gone through this whole marketing campaign of black is okay, it's better for ripe food, ripened food, um, <laughs> this poor guy, he was a part of the commission and he was trying to make a variety of Haas avocados that were green so they wouldn't have to deal with this whole, you know, situation of is it ripe, is it not, how do you sell, whatever. But by the time he actually made a specimen that could be vital to this industry, that's when everybody had decided, oh, we only want the ones that are actually going to ripen to a black color. <laughs> so the guy's like, in a quote somewhere, he was just like, oh, okay, I guess this is happening. <laughs> My work, <laughs> not really helping. Um, back to the statistics of Haas avocados. So you got the 95% that are sold in the U.S. and 80% per of avocados sold worldwide are Haas. 300 million pounds are produced from California alone. But Mexico still beats out production and distribution distribution in the U.S. market with 1.7 billion pounds of avocados wow. per year. So, like saying that you know 200 million that they uh, the Mexico avocado commission brings in every Super Bowl month, that is just such a slim number of avocados that are being given out in uh, the U.S. So 1% of California, even though 300 million pounds is a lot for, you know, California, it takes up 1%, only 1% of California land, which I mean, maybe is like, can be astounding because California is large and to take up any percent is like, wow. But at the same time, it's like, oh, it's just kind of a little sliver. Um, for Mexico, it takes up a lot more and that kind of, has led to issues about deforestation. Um, but the industry, the U.S., sorry, the U.S. market is actually made up of $200 billion worth of, you know, avocado trade going on. 
So what's even crazier, considering all these numbers about, you know, how many avocados are being produced globally, is that all avocados, Haas avocados, are tracing their lineage back to one tree in California. And this is not like an ancient tree or anything. This is in the 1900s kind of tree. Uh, Rudolf Haas planted several seeds on his La Habra Heights property in 1926. He tried grafting his seeds with other varieties of avocado, but there was one particular tree that defied every grafting attempt on it. When it didn't produce any fruit, he gave up. But the Smithsonian Magazine reports that his children claimed to have found the first fruit on the trees years later. Both the tree and fruit were hardy specimens. The tree could produce more fruit per pound, which is about 60 pounds per year, I think it was. Or it might be 120 pounds and it's 60 fruit. Or it might be 60 pounds and 120 <laughs> fruit. I forget which. Um, but it can produce more fruit per pound than the traditional fuerte avocado, and its harvesting season was longer than any other variety, and the fruit could hold out longer on shelves. Haas then patented, patented the tree in 1935, but often when someone had purchased the intellectually protected tree, they would go ahead and graft it onto their own variety, so nothing really came out of selling these trees for the Haas family, Overall, they got less than $5,000 <laughs> from their intellectual property. And really the only thing that's kind of, that they also point out, like his descendants and all that, is that the worthiness is having the Hass name on the tree. Yeah, at least you leave a legacy that way, I guess. That's true. And hey, we're talking about him still. Yeah. And we're also pointing out the fact that, you know, he should have gotten that you know, more than just $4,000, I guess. So the original tree is now lost to us as it perished from rot, root rot in 2002. We also still don't know where the mysterious plant came from. Its historical genetic strain still remains clandestine to us. Um, and when I was looking up the varieties about avocados... I don't know what really piqued my interest about green avocados. Maybe the it is the fact that they are also known as Florida avocados. So Southern California and Florida are like the best places for avocados to grow. Um, they're tropical. Well, at least Florida is tropical. Uh, Southern California, not so much, but it's a mild temperature. So it, the avocado trees just can't really experience true frost. Um, but kind of to show you like the comparison between the Haas avocado and the green avocado. So the Haas is smaller, black, purple in color when ripe. It has a lot of good monounsaturated and polyunsaturated fats. It makes a good substitute for butter. It's great for whipping into guac and the fat allows for vitamins to be carried into the body and dissolve better. And one-third of this type of avocado is 80 calories. Um, and I guess maybe this is kind of why the whole fat uh, dilemma when it comes to avocados, you know, like seeing that there was an issue with it in the 1980s, um, that's when a lot of research started kind of <laughs> uh, getting done by the commission saying that, like, 
okay, no, this fat is actually good for you. So like, don't worry about it. Um, but there's still kind of like this, uh, I want to say resentment towards the fat in Haas avocados. So it has a lot, but at the same time, it's good, right? And I was finding in most articles about green avocados, they do point out the fact that green avocados have less fat um, and also less calories, but I don't know why you would be wanting to point out the fact that it has less fat when it's good kind of fat. Because I guess because just psychologically it has been ingrained in us, you know, low fat, low fat, low fat. I guess so. It just seems kind of gross to me that companies would be wanting to just say like, oh, this is better for you, even if it's not really. Um, the type of fat actually is good for bringing in you know, like different vitamins like A and uh, I want to say B was also part of the avocado, but because fat actually brings it into your body and lets you your body dissolve it, it's a lot better for you too. Um, I also just think it's kind of rude <laughs> when people are like trying to sell you the green avocado because as some people have pointed out it tastes like avocado water <laughs> without having the fat in it there isn't much flavor it's also a lot firmer because of that um which makes it great for salads or anything that needs to keep kind of like a structured form so if it's cubed or sliced then you should go for a green avocado but if you like want a good guacamole or something, you have to go for it, Haas. Don't go for a green Florida avocado, um, which I remember like a few months ago, I saw my first green avocado and we had bought one. It was huge, right? <laughs> Do you remember yeah. that? Because this is like four times the size of a regular avocado, maybe three, whatever. I don't know. But... It was not good at all. <laughs> like, no slight to green avocado farmers or anything. But when you are expecting a Haas avocado, which I didn't really know there were different varieties of it. I'm just kind of like, an avocado is an avocado. But it was so hard to cut. It wouldn't mash up. And... It had no flavor. <laughs> it was kind of like, all right, this isn't cool. Actually, the one we had, I don't know if anybody else finds avocados when they have spoiled to taste like this, but they smell and taste like to me like soap. It's not good at all. And that's what this avocado tasted like <laughs> a bit. Um, so that's like a difference between the Haas and the green avocado, the history, all that. So now we're on to what to do on National Avocado Day. Uh, before you start with that, yeah. it's making me think, you know, when you were saying, what do I think about when I see an avocado or hear it? And um, what I usually think about now is you and Mama and your experience with the guacamole in Maya Chan. Yeah, <laughs> and it's so funny because you know since I don't like avocado, I had gone. Um, we actually went down to Maya Chan, which is in the Yucatan Peninsula, and I went out snorkeling, and came back to my mom and Bryce, 
with three empty bowls. And apparently they had been full of guacamole. And I was only gone about 45 minutes. Yeah. So and that's kind of like what I either. think about when you say guacamole or avocado. Uh, that should have been in your, yeah, your typical original description. But um, that was really good guacamole. And that was my first, like, good experience with guacamole. Having guacamole before... I was kind of like, this is gross. There's, again, no, like, flavor or it's just weird. I don't like it. But that flavor down there was just so good. And the chips and what was it, pina coladas, too? Yeah. <laughs> I still think I had a virgin one. but um, I think Mama only had one that actually had alcohol. And after that, she's like, okay, enough. Yeah. So, and that's what you think of avocados. So, Go celebrate Avocado Day by going to Maya Chan. Or, yeah, there you go. Um, or just make some guac at home. Or you can even try, like, the weird recipes that, you know, people have been trying to make work for a while. Like uh, avocado smoothies. Which, okay, sure, they're <laughs> creamy. But they still taste like avocado. I want something sweet if I'm going for a smoothie. <laughs> avocado toast seems to be really big right now oh, too. I'm, I'm down for a good avocado toast <laughs> also um oh what was it i'm trying to remember it was some kind of a thing to do with smoothies or something i don't remember but avocados with all the fat and they act like butter can be used as a substitute for butter so uh, a lot of vegan recipes use it including for bakery uh, or for baking so you can make a vegan cake, vegan chocolate cake with an avocado. I don't know how I'd like that. <laughs> they say it doesn't taste like avocado, which I kind of imagine is not true. Like, I'm sure it's a very slight flavor to it. Just like they say, just to let you know, if you're making this avocado cake and you are presenting it to people who don't know it's avocado cake, you got to tell them it's a little green because of that. <laughs> I've been to a lot of different uh, plantations and orchards, uh, vineyards, things like that, but I've never been to an avocado plantation. So when you were in California, did you ever go to one? I did not even see avocado trees from what I remember. I saw almond trees. I saw a lot of nuts, like macadamia and such. Yeah, I know when we were up like um, outside San Francisco, that's pretty much what they talked about, were mainly the nuts and how much water like one almond took like six gallons to make one almond or yeah. something like that which okay this kind of annoys me a bit after i learned about it so everybody points out that like almonds are you know they suck up a lot of water and so you should use a different nut because they suck up less water that's not true all nuts take up about the same average of in like fresh water from the ground or from some kind of an irrigation system. So, you know, I guess go with whatever nut you like the most <laughs> and don't worry about the environmental impact unless you're like, oh no, we shouldn't eat nuts at all anymore. And then switch to something else or just eat less nuts or something. <laughs> but don't just be like, okay, yeah, let's go to, you know, a cashew or something because it still takes up the same amount of water. 
Um, that's my little rant about <laughs> nuts. Um, and I am not going to be able to celebrate this on National Avocado Day. But in less than a week, I'll be in San Diego. And they apparently have an avocado pop-up museum. It's called the Cado. It's fully interactive, apparently. They say something about you can touch the avocado skin walls, which kind of freaks me out a bit. <laughs> Is it like they just stripped a bunch of avocados and then, you know, hung them up by putting a pin stop in it or whatever? <laughs> like, I don't know. But that's one aspect to it. There are others. Apparently, there is a John Mayer, or no, sorry, Jason Mraz uh, interpretation of some kind of like history or whatever. And apparently, it's on video cassette, <laughs> very hipster like. But yeah, that's what I would like to celebrate. And if you are in North uh, County, San Diego, North City specifically, then you should go check that out. Well, now that makes sense to me because yesterday you said that you were going to do something very different in San Diego, but you wouldn't tell me and you said that you'd tell me today. And that makes sense since you can give away your facts. Exactly. I got day. too excited about the Cado that I, I couldn't <laughs> tell you about it, but I wanted to tell you everything around it. I am it. so glad I'm not going on this trip this time because I'm sorry. Just uh, if I did, I would have to sit out the avocado pop-up. But again, there's just so much more about it that you can go ahead and explore weirdly uh, weird wallpaper on a building. Yeah, I might throw up all over you. Yeah. I can climb up cliffs and do all this stuff without getting sick, but an avocado room might do me in. You think like if you press the skin, it would like ooze out? Because they said there were holes in the wall too. But I forget what the holes were about. This is going down very quick again. <laughs> it's been going down from the top, so. I know. A lot of people like avocado. I just, I cannot get into it. Did you enjoy the stories, Elise? Well, I mean, it's interesting to hear the history. And like I said, it's very interesting to me to think that a plant, once again, I understand that there's regional names for it, but usually it's pretty similar. You know, you've got your, your scientific name and then a few common names that then become common in multiple languages. And for it to, well, I guess in general, it was known as the alligator pear for a long time in multiple right. languages, basically. But um, to, to change names to actually be called an avocado just... It really does amaze me that it was in this century, basically. Well, yeah. I guess it's not this century now since we're 2000s since the 1900s, but still that it's relatively, you know, a newer thing that came in. Yeah. I really only looked at the American side of things because we do eat so much here. I don't know how much is eaten in Europe. It doesn't really look like that much when I've gone. And... um just because it is further away from tropical regions that they would have to like import them and all that. I've also kind of tried to stay away from uh, avocados there because it's true. The few that I have had are not the best. That's in desperate times when you need a, uh, some guacamole. <laughs> well, and you've been in Europe more than I have is like, I know that 
junk food obviously is not a big thing there. Like potato chips probably are not a huge thing. So I would think chips and dip probably are not a very common thing there. I mean, I definitely see a lot of chips when it came to dip. I don't know. Like, uh, <laughs> it's pretty sad. But when I think of chips, I think of like, if I'm talking about Lay's chips, at least, you know, you can buy them in the bag and all that. Um, I'm like ketchup and they don't even like to do ketchup over there, especially yeah. friends. They're like, oh, an American coming over <laughs> and having ketchup or asking for it. How dare you? It seems like, you know, maybe on their fish and stuff, there's sauces. But I just I, from what I've seen when we've been over there, it really doesn't seem to be a huge, you know, chip and dip culture. And I think a lot of the snacks relate to like pastries something sweet that you can also kind of balance out with like an espresso shot. Yeah. But even though Europe and this kind of, again, like I don't really know much of what the history was after the Europeans found out about the fruit. I read something about the Roi Soleil, King Louis the 16th. Um, in France, he would order them and I think he used them as an aphrodisiac, but other than European standards for, uh, you know, avocados and whatever, um, China and uh, I want to say India, but it might just be kind of like the Southeast Asia climate. There are big time um, producers and importers and exporters in Southeast Asia who have picked up on avocados since they kind of made their way over in the past like century or so too. Now it seems like in London we had a few avocado things and like at the high tea, I believe had some avocado with the sandwiches. So. They might have, but because I don't remember them, I kind of have to give it up to like, Oh, was it wasn't that. Amazing. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> anyway. Okay. Well, I guess I'm up. Yeah. Go for it, mom. Let's talk about weird musical instruments. <laughs> Uncommon instruments doesn't mean they're weird. They're just uncommon. They're just different. Yeah. So I have Uncommon Instrument Awareness Day. Totally different than weird instruments because there are some unique instruments out there. They just aren't as known as others, I think. That's better than weird. Okay, so uh, it's also July 31st. So we had the same day, uh, which... Is what Wednesday? Yeah, Wednesday. So, yep. So you can celebrate it on Wednesday this week. And there's not a whole lot about the actual day or the history of the day. Um, it's about uncommon instruments and bringing awareness that there are other things besides pianos, guitars, mm -hmm. saxophones, yeah, flutes. You know, things that you regularly see in an orchestra for the most part or that kids usually beg you to buy them and they play for about two months and then they discard them. Hey, I've been playing my ukulele longer than yes, two months. Yes, actually, you've given a really good go of your ukulele, which you'll have to play on one of our episodes at some point. Maybe. <laughs> I feel like it wouldn't really come across the audio. Now, in a way, that's kind of an uncommon instrument. It was, you know, sort of popular back, I guess, what, 60s, maybe 70s? Like, kind of got popular in the 20s and 30s when it was actually combined with a banjo. 
But then, yeah, like. Then it kind of fell to the wayside, kind of made it come back, kind of fell to the wayside again until um, recently, like with America's Got Talent and some other things that a lot of uh, ukulele people have been coming um, out and doing. Actually, there's the one girl, she was also on America's Got Talent, who is deaf Mm -hmm. and plays the ukulele and is amazing. And uh, I actually got to see her in person. Yeah. She did a private concert um, for. For our group, and that was just incredible. She is an amazing person and great ukulele skills. Yeah. As well as other skills. But, um, okay, so back to uncommon instruments here, though. Uh, I want to talk about them, and then I'm going to play some clips of them because there are okay. some definite in- interesting ones out there. And I will only be talking about what you know, we probably think as typical instruments, even though they're uncommon, but that maybe have strings on them or are similar, you know, to a keyboard or something like that. There's other unique things that I'm going to talk about, such as sculptures. And okay. um, I don't know what other term to make it out to, but mechanisms? <laughs> Kinetic-related things. I don't know. And just everyday ordinary things as well so i found a lot of interesting things in the research since i didn't find much about the day you know i just thought okay well i'll start looking up different websites that talk about some of the more uncommon ones um some of the ones that actually have featured specifically blogs or uh commentary because of past um uncommon instrument awareness day such as 2018 you know and, and beyond that but um, so what I'm going to start with is NPR, but not the NPR that we usually talk about. This is actually Nashville Public Radio. Oh, okay. So um, thought that was kind of interesting too that they they have those letters that go with it. So Nashville uh, Public Radio. I'm going to bring up um, now. One thing I do want to say on this is we are usually pretty good about citing our sources. Sometimes we might not cite them clearly but for this because I am going to be using some clips and some definite things from websites I want to make sure that I do definitely cite all these websites um, or the people associated with them and I will be adding um, the links to the description for our podcast so uh, please you know don't hunt us down I am doing this because I really do want to promote um, your musical instruments here your talent yeah um, so I'm going to make it clear, you know, where I'm getting all this information from. And I am using quite a bit of websites and videos and things like that for this one. Um, okay, so starting out with uh, Nashville Public Radio, they wrote this one last year. Uh, their writer is actually Kara McClelland, and she wrote this exactly for July 31st okay. for um, celebrating Uncommon Instrument Day. And she did a lot of really cool research and found some um, very unique instruments and really went into the history of them. So um, I will have the link to the specific website in here because also the clips I'm going to play are off of um, off of several websites. But the several of the clips that I'm going to you know talk about now and play are on this website. So you um, you might want to go and actually listen to the full clips. Plus, I'm not going to go into all the um, instruments that she has here I'll mention them but I'm not going to play all of them a um, couple of them are interesting but unless you really see them 
you won't you wouldn't get the full effect of them a little <laughs> bit too abstract yeah so so if you ever do a, a vlog <laughs> then i can include them but certainly you can go to the website so in this case it's nashvillepublicradio.org um and then go ahead and look up you know do a search for their uncommon instruments but i'll put a direct link in there so um she starts out with the first one is and i am sure i am probably going to butcher some of the names of some of these things because they aren't very American, um, at least sounding. So this is O-N-D-E-S-M-A-R-T-E-N-O-T. But basically, um, this was created during World War One. It was uh, created by Maurice Martineau. I'm assuming because you don't pronounce the T right in French. Yeah. So Martineau. He was a cellist and a radio operator at the same time. Uh, interesting, you know, combination there. But I guess um, there were many unique combinations when it came to wars and stuff because people being drafted. And yeah, wartime like after. Yeah. So um, he basically used radio oscillators and just found a very unique quality about them. So he decided to um, take radio oscillators and um, it's probably better for me just to read this statement rather than try to explain it. But so um, the first public ondes Martineau. <laughs> something like okay, that. Okay, so the first ones of these, uh, the first public performance took place in 1928. The early versions of the instrument included players sliding a metal ring with an attached wire to create a futuristic electronic glissandos. And then he added... Wait, wait, what's a glisten dose? Uh, well, it would just be kind of, you know, a, like a gliding and a weird um, weird kind of flowy, high-pitched... Okay, so gliding, sliding... <laughs> yeah, so once again, it's based on radio oscillators. So they're uh-huh. going to be like frequencies going up and down. And um, it, later he actually added a four-octave keyboard to it. So if you do go to this website, this is one that I'm not going to play... But if you go to this website, um, they actually have a whole group of people that came out. Um, I believe it was six of them. Yeah, six of them that came out because there was a actual piece written called the, I'm going to butcher it again, Fete de Bell O. So um, basically, this piece was written solely to use this particular instrument for and it was written for six of them so they actually have six people come out on stage and perform uh, this number with these six um, instruments and once again this is one that if I just played it you wouldn't you know get the feel for it but um, you need to go and actually watch it because it's kind of different and interesting that Uh, one sounds a lot like very similar to the theremin the theremin whatever kind of instrument that is is that the one that's like you there's nothing there and you like play it like with the, the harp. magnetic yeah so actually so i'm gonna skip ahead to one other website um real quick and then i'll come back to this one but it, it is very similar to that as well as another uncommon instrument called the uh the zeusophone that also sounds familiar is it something to do kind of like with a clarinet? 
No, no. Okay, it it kind of goes back to the radio waves okay. and, and things like that. And um, I don't remember the name of that one that you do play, like, with I think the it's harp. A theremin. Okay. The one that was, like, used for the Twilight Zone music and sci-fi music yeah. and all that. I I remember seeing it, you know, when we've been to different conferences and stuff like that. But um, so the Zeusophone. Uh, where I'm getting this information, and I guess I'll kind of switch back and forth. I want to try to stay on one website at a time, but but it does lead in well with the radio mm-hmm. oscillation to this one. Um, so this is on um, musicinschoolstoday.org. And, uh, Gotta keep it there. Yeah. Gotta keep the music. So basically, the Zeusophone, according to them, is a singing Tesla coil. Okay. So it's a kind of transformer circuit. And um, if you've been to, most people have been to a science center, you know, um, majority of people, I think. And they've got that like round ball that's electrified that you can put your hands on. And right. either your hair stands up or you see like electricity. It's so like pink and blue. And yeah. And then you can get like home ones, little plasma balls to sit on your desk and stuff. And they, you know, look like the electricity going through them. So that's actually kind of what it looks like, and that's kind of how it makes its music. So this one I will play for you. Okay. But once again, it's based on, you know, waves, um, very similar to, in his case, the radio waves. It would just be more like the electricity waves and stuff. (laughs) Okay. So if you end up going to the website musicandschooltoday.org or you look up the Zeusophone, um, you know, Google it and look up any of the videos out there, you, uh, you'll actually see basically whenever it makes that tone, it does a elect- electric spark yeah. as well. So I think that one's kind of interesting. It is very uncommon. It's not weird. You know, it's just uncommon. So yeah, it's pretty cool. But okay, so the, um, so, um, the Zeusophone... Uh, uses electricity produced a frequency that can be turned into music, much like a, oh, there you go, a theremin. There you go. So, yeah. <laughs> uh, the name is a combination of Zeusophone and Zeus, the Greek god who hurls lightning at his enemies. The Zeusophone makes buzzy synth-like noise that sounds like it's straight out science fiction. So it's kind of on the same lines of all three of those then. You've got the Zeusophone, the one that you brought up, the theremin. And then the uh, one that I cannot pronounce, the Otis Martineau. So, um, okay. So um, going back now to the first website, the National Public Radio, she continues in our article to talk uh, about the next one, which is called a, like this, a hurdy-gurdy. Oh, I know what hurdy-gurdy is. You know what a hurdy-gurdy is? Yeah. Ah, how do you know what a hurdy-gurdy is? Because I think there's some YouTuber who, I think I was looking up a glockenspiel. Or maybe, I might be getting the two confused. Is it like a sort of stringed instrument, but you rotate it around and it vibrates against the strings? Well, uh, you got it partially correct. So it's like the combination of a whole bunch of ones. So it's got the strings and you rotate it, but it has different things on the back. Like pegs that you put in? Well, I'll still explain. <laughs> okay. <laughs> okay, so um, I like how she actually, so I'm going to read her, um, her thing. So I'm quoting her here now, but I like how she says this. 
She says, a version of this delightfully named instrument. It is definitely delightful, isn't it? Uh, first appeared in the 10th century, but its heyday was in the Renaissance when it was used to accompany both common folk dances and royal court entertainment. Okay, so this is where it, uh, to me, gets really, really interesting. So it's very similar to a violin, but instead of a handheld bow, strings are vibrated with a built-in wheel that's turned with a crank. Right. So that's interesting enough there. I mean, you could stop there and it would be a very, you know, interesting and uncommon, um, uncommon instrument. But as the lower strings provide the drone, the upper trumpet strings give the characteristic buzzing that's likened, she says, to a barking dog. But on the back, a keyboard is um, used on the underside of the neck to produce melodies. Right. So it kind of looks like, in a way, it looks like a big um, spinning wheel, you know, like from the, what do you call it? I don't know. But either way, it's like this big casket, and it's maybe about two feet, three feet long or something like that. And you have this crank that's connected to the wheel. And like you're saying, you have the two drone strings when if you do it in a certain way, there is this uh, musical term. I don't know if you want to call it musical term, but it's a term related to the hurdy-gurdy that makes it sound like it is a barking dog. Or at least it's like, yip, yip, yip. <laughs> oh, uh, we'll play it a minute, so we'll see how close you came to it there. <laughs> but yeah, so they actually, uh, once again, if you go to NashvillePublicRadio.org to the um, the specific instrument uh site then she has the videos and it has you know of course the thumbnail image and uh is pretty much what you described the guy holding it to me though like firsthand when you're not realizing there's a crank on it it uh reminds me of almost a i want to say dulcimer what's a the harp things harpsichords it looks like Mm -hmm, a big harpsichord kind of so Okay, so ready to hear it? All right, let's listen to the So this is a hurdy-gurdy, and according to the video, it's Matthias uh, Leubner, I guess, playing it. So like that buzzing supposed to be the barking. I know. I think that buzzing would actually annoy me. I would think that it's not... uh, I don't know, like the, like it's too close to the mic or something. Yeah. So. Well, fortunately, like that's not just how the instrument plays. It's kind of like it always sounds like how it was without the buzz. You just specifically manipulate it to basically put like claps onto it to make it buzz. I guess that, that wouldn't be as bad, but it would drive me crazy. Like when we're trying to get our microphones, you know, no buzzing and stuff. That's what I would think. That's like, okay, his microphone is not working correctly. Yeah. So anyway. Okay. So that was a hurdy gurdy. I think that that will be my next kitty cat name. I really hurdy-gurdy. like that. <laughs> like that name You a can lot. either be like hurdy or you can be gurdy. Yeah. Hurdy gurd. Um, I'm just going to breeze through this one. So if you go to her website, she talks about a sharps accord, uh, Actually, though, the guy, the inventor of the Sharpsichord was uh inventor of quite a few instruments. So I will talk about him a little bit later with another one. But basically kind of a 
oh, what were those called? Um, well, they have cylinders and like little spikes, almost like what's inside a music box kind of, but I know there's a certain name for that, and it's a cylinder with little spikes on it. And uh, you could actually change out um, the sparks, basically. So, uh, moving on, she has also a Picasso guitar, but I won't get into that beyond the fact that there's 42 strings on it. Oh, my. What are you supposed <laughs> to do with all 42? Oh, well, I really don't know. She didn't give a whole lot of detail either. So, Because, uh, like, a ukulele like... has four. A guitar generally has six. That's, like, way more than a 12-string guitar <laughs> or anything like that by a yeah. lot. So, well, if you want to research or look it up a little bit more, it's called Picasso Guitar, but not like the... Um, not like the artist is P I K A S S O. So okay, okay. The Chromalodian, same thing. This was very bizarre one to me. So I guess if you want to go back to your weird instruments instead of uncommon, no, this one's not, this is yeah. very weird. I can't. I'm if I play it, it's just gonna be weird. So it's one of the ones that you will have to watch a video. But basically, it's a reed organ. And I don't know. It drove me kind of okay. crazy listening to it. Um, yeah, it just made a very, very weird sound. It's like an organ, but it's almost like a delayed sound on each one or a very prolonged sound. Okay. But anyway, so uh, so she talks a little bit about that. Um, and you can Do go you back and listen. remember the episode? I think it was from the Magic School Bus. Where they go into the house, that's all like musical instruments. <laughs> Makes me think of Miss Frizzle or her friend or something like that, who was at a weird organ. Yeah, that's right. And then there was that. What was that other one that we listened to? The um, same. Oh, we sing in Sillyville. The Sillyville series had that whole like musical mansion. Yeah, that was interesting too. So. She also talks about a glass harmonica. Actually, that one's real pretty. Um, I won't go into detail, but I can play it. Um, the, what I will say about it, it was interesting that Benjamin Franklin um, mechanized the process in 1762. And basically, it's just based on the same idea of taking a wine glass, putting water in it, dipping your finger in mm -hmm, it, kind yeah. of. So it's kind of the idea of any glass, you know, uh, will actually make a, a humming sound in different pitches like that. So it's kind of as pretty. As you have some spittle on it or something. <laughs> yeah, I guess so. In this case, he doesn't eat the spittle. But um, the video that she includes on here is kind of pretty. And it really does kind of sound like when you play with a glass. It doesn't sound like a harmonica at all. No. It's, uh, yeah. It's pretty, though. Okay. Okay, this is the one, though. Well, actually, let me let me come back to that one, because there's a lot that I um, want to say about that. Is that going to be, like, so. the finale one? <laughs> I guess it will, but for this website. Okay, so... Um, it's skipping that one and coming back to it. Uh, the next one is a floppy drive orchestra. So they use like an actual floppy drive to... So, yeah, old floppy drives. <laughs> and I know that you have not had that experience, but uh, you could always tell basically when your floppy drive was working because you could hear the click, 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 click. 
on it. So is it like you're putting it into the computer to get the click, or is it just like the mechanism inside the computer? Well, so it's funny because uh, they aren't, they definitely had to take it and retool it, but when, um, you know, just a regular floppy drive, yeah, it was the mechanism inside kind of um, reading it. Mm-hmm. And it would do the clicking. So this this person, you know, basically took it and expanded on it using those clicks. Um, it's not definitely not something that most people, you know, it's maybe an uncommon instrument like the didgeridoo. You know, for most people, that's going to be uncommon. They would pick it up and play it. This would be definitely more techie, and you would have to be into. Uh, the tech behind it to control the clicks right. and things like yeah. that. So, but I think it's still interesting that someone even did this. Um, so <laughs> the one that uh, she talks about and uh, the video, well, actually the one she talks about is probably the only one out there, yeah. at least the only person that does it. But uh, it's, uh, it's been programmed to perform music and number style. She says even a cover for the 1993 techno hit, hit what is love (laughs) so um the software was designed of course by a software engineer his name was sam archer so here is what his um his eight she calls them screeching machines sound like um they're the soothing sounds of johan pachabell though on these eight screeching machines but the software was actually designed by sam archer here we go it should bring back memories. <laughs> I like it, weirdly enough. <laughs> it's kind of like a scratching noise. Yeah. Well, the funny thing is, is it's kind of... It really is cool sounding, but at the same time, you didn't want to hear like too many clicks or like it getting stuck on certain things because then you knew it wasn't reading it quite right. Uh-huh. So anyway, but yeah, I think it's uh, yeah, ingenious idea. <laughs> okay. So the next one she talks about, there are, I want to say rumors because she actually does have a, a drawing and um, stuff, but it never came to fruition, which is a good thing, oh. especially in my case, because I would be devastated. Is it a guacamole music machine? <laughs> no, not a guacamole. It's just like somebody pressing down on the mash. and. <laughs> no, no, but it has to deal with um, cats, tails, and nails. Oh. <laughs> okay, so it's called the Cats and Clavier. Clavier. Which is oh, okay. Sorry. Keyboard. Cats. Yes. Okay. So I am going to read but this one German. too. that's German. Cats and Yes. Like cats and flocken, the, the German food that we get for the kitties. Uh-huh. <laughs> okay. So I am going to read this exactly how she has it written because um, it is very interesting and I don't want to get anything wrong. Uh, the illustration that she has, so if you do go back to the website, the Nashville um, Public Radio's website. She has an illustration from Casper Schott's Magia Universalis Natural et Artist. And it's from 1657. Okay. 
it's amazing that they you know have that around but <laughs> basically it is a very rough drawing and shows a piano keyboard and a box and a bunch of cats uh-huh. so the concept of the cats and clav- clavier according uh, to her article is the stuff of nightmares nine cats are contained arranged by the natural tone of their mew with their tails stretched under a keyboard. Uh-huh. When a key is depressed, a nail is driven into the cat's tail, Aww. eliciting a cry from the animal. <laughs> I would cry too. <laughs> so its origin is debated. So this is good. The demented instrument appears in antidotal stories meant to criticize the cruelty of royalty. And just when you thought it couldn't get any weirder, one 18th century German physician touted it not as a musical instrument, but instead as a remedy for psychiatric patients. Okay, sure. Why not? Yeah, let's abuse the poor kitties. <laughs> so it's the idea that now that the tail is nailed to the key, is it every time you press on it, it should like yank on them and they should meow or? Well, it's supposed to drive a nail in their tail and that causes them to mew. So it's not like the tail's permanently attached to the key. It's just the nail goes in. Right, right. Oh, no. that's even worse. I somehow. know. But um, so here's the good news. She says, there's no evidence to show that the cats and clavier, clavier, clavier. You can do whatever you want. <laughs> was ever actually constructed. What we do have is a much more humane, perhaps equally bizarre version built by none other than Sharps Accord inventor Harry Daggs. So remember I said that, you know, she talked about the Sharps Accord. Yeah, this guy's busy. So anyway, I'm going to play his uncommon instrument that he designed. You really do kind of have to see it, but it still will be interesting to hear it. Um, Basically, he has a bunch of stuffed animal kitties, and they are not stuffed they're not taxidermy they uh, are that's good they are plush kitties um that have different sounds in them so here is the cat organ played by the the, the inventor of the sharps accord henry dagg This is a win for you, Mom. Everybody now. Anyway, when I was watching this and hearing it, it reminded me of, I believe it was, it could have been early 90s, late 80s, early 90s, somewhere in there. I think it was probably late 80s. Kind of think according to when I would be, uh, whatever relating age. it to <laughs> your <laughs> childhood. Um, they actually came out with a CD of Christmas carols made with cats meows, and this um, person actually went out and taped all of these meows of cats, oh. and then matched them up to the notes, you know, different of the scale and stuff, and then actually made a whole Christmas album based on these kitty. Voices. So that's what it reminded me of. I was thinking like a different version of a keyboard cat. You know, the f- <laughs> oh, kind of yeah. chubby cat with the shirt and he's just playing on the piano. He passed away, I think, this year or last year. I, I think it was a few years ago. 
All right, so going back on this website to her last one, which will lead into some of the other ones, but I I actually think this is really cool. And once again, this is one that you will have to see, but I am going to play it because it um, is very neat to hear it too. But um, it is called the Marble Machine. Have you ever heard of it? No, but I guess I could estimate what it's about. <laughs> so what do you think it is? I'm going to guess it's just a bunch of marbles falling down onto like different keystrokes. So that's, I mean, that's kind of what it is. Um, it's a little bit more elaborate than that. Or is that. it just a pinball machine? No, no, no. I mean, it is, it is a huge elaborate thing. So um, Martin Molin, if I'm pronouncing it correctly, is from a Swedish band called Wintergatan. Okay. And... Uh, is she said that he went viral with this video featuring the Marble Machine, a hand-powered feat of engineering using 2,000 marbles to orchestrate a song with a vibraphone, bass guitar, and simulated drums. The band has plans for new and improved Marble Machines and gives updates regularly on their YouTube page about the process and the construction. So go follow them on YouTube. Once again, it's Martin Molin, Swedish band Wintergatan. W-I-N-T-E-R-G-A-T-A-N. Sure. Because so, um, it is just, it's, I mean, and you can also, once again, uh, when you come read this article that she wrote, she does have uh, a link to it. Um, you know, it's embedded on her webpage, the YouTube. But it is just, it is absolutely fascinating. So um, uh, it's, it's a huge contraption, and it basically has a crank to be able to, send all the marbles out but then once they're sent out according to how they're timed and levers that they pull mm -hmm. they fall onto more than just keystrokes but they have like a xylophone they have these funnily things um it's i don't know this thing in back that has a lot of click things um so these marbles go in this machine and are funneled to these different things and it's just amazing they have all these wood uh levers and switches and they're labeled and all they do is turn one and it's like then all of a sudden it makes another noise so it's it's fascinating i think it's neat to hear it but i think it'll be even more fascinating you know if you were to see it so mm -hmm. okay the machine's as big as the guy he just walked up to it and now he's pulling a crank just getting a lot of gears into gear looks very steampunky yeah. Ooh. That's just the falling of the marbles. Yeah. I'd like to play more, but yeah. <laughs> um, so well, they're like most of the marbles you can't really see, but at the clip you were just ending at, they're like popping out of the machine. Yeah, I think you're seeing it from you know, my phone way across the room. Right. So, um, you know, if you go, I think you can see it more. They really show them getting in line, and it's just it's amazing. So, um, either you know, um, 
come back to this article on Nashville Public Radio because it's just interesting. It has all these clips that I just talked about, but um, it has that one. But also just once again, go follow them on YouTube uh, because they are in the process of making others. And it is, it's amazing. <laughs> it really is, especially thinking that, you know, here it's uh, a band, so they're more musically inclined. And you've mm-hmm. got someone that just built this structure that's just definitely amazing. Okay, so that leads me into um, there are obviously, like I mentioned at the beginning of um, you know my section here, there's uh, things that are like sculptures or big mechanisms like that. So when we think about you know instruments, we tend to once again think about the common ones, or even if we think about some of the uncommon ones, like a didgeridoo or something like that, we don't think about these big, massive things that can, that really aren't instruments. They're other things, and people have now thought of creative ways to make them into instruments. So when I was uh, thinking about that and just uh, looking up some things based on that, then I started to find uh, sculptures that are uh, musical. Because of, like, winds. Yeah, and they become musical instruments themselves. So there were uh, several out there that were mentioned. The one that came up a lot was the singing, ringing tree in uh, Lancashire. Lancashire. Lancashire, Lancashire, England. Yeah, Lancashire, England. Uh, it's, It's supposed to look like a tree. I think that's probably pushing it as a very abstract uh-huh. art piece tree. Um, it and has long appendages like branches, right? It's not even that. Oh, really? It, to me, it doesn't look like a tree, so you'll see it in a minute. Um, if, if you all want to see it, you can Google it. But also, um, what I'm going to go through now with the uh, sculptures, there's eight sound sculptures uh, that this one website actually mm-hmm. talked about. Some of the uh, There's definitely more out there, but some of the major ones that are known about. And this is from amusingplanet.com. And uh, it was actually three years ago, not put out because of Uncommon Instrument Day, just it was uh, more about the uh, sculptures themselves. Uh, I will say it is in the Penine Mountain Range, if you know England at all, over uh, overlooking Burnley. And it's probably good that it's up in a mountain range. Well, first of all, they need wind, obviously, to make the sound. But the other thing is um, that, honestly, I would not want to be around it. It isn't like a um, very soft, melodic uh, wind chime. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, it's very interesting. I think it's cool. But I think if you were like lived next to it, it might be a little bit um, annoying after a while. Be calling up the cops every night being like, <laughs> that tree out there. So let me go ahead and bring this one up. And so the different sculptures that I'm going to be talking about right now um, are once again from amusingplanet.com. I will actually put the direct link uh, down for the, uh, for the, uh, for the article but it is called the eight sound, eight sound sculptures that let nature be the musician. So uh, the 
Once again, it does not look like a tree. It's basically just a bunch of uh, hollow tubes, but they aren't coming off as a of a tree. They're just kind of stacked together. I mean, it's a very very it cool sculpture. It looks like sculpture. a building because it's like it looks like a tornado. Yeah. Okay, that's a very good yeah a description. Tw- of it. it looks it like does, the twister from Twister. It does look like that, and I mean, it's very cool, but it just um does. If I looked at, it, I wouldn't go. You know, that's a tree or whatever. Uh, but it is very, very interesting um, looking, and that's probably one of the best descriptions is it really does look like a tornado. Okay, so here is what it sounds like. It's very ominous. I know. It sounds like um, souls crying out or something. Yeah, it's like from Dante's Inferno. <laughs> it's definitely space agey or very, very weird. So I, I think it's very, very cool, interesting concept, but um, it would be hard to live next door to it. Yeah, exactly. Um, okay, so on that same we- we- uh, website, the Amusing Planet, they talk about a wind pavilion in London. Did you get to go to that? Mm, I don't remember anything about a wind pavilion. It's the Aeolus Wind Pavilion at London's Canary Wharf. And it's comprised of 310 stainless steel tubes uh, that basically make a big arch. So you can walk under it and then listen to it and hear it that way. I definitely have not seen that. <laughs> So, well, if you're in London, you can go check that out. Uh, they do on on this website, um, Amusing Planet, they actually do have, they have a little bit of history about each, talk about mm-hmm. kind of the um, structures themselves, and then they do have a video on each. So you can go back and listen to some. There's a sound garden in Seattle, and it's on the campus of the National Ocean, Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration, or NOAA. And uh, it was designed and built by Doug Hollis during the early 1980s and features 12 steel towers that look like cell phone towers, inside of which hangs organ pipes of varying lengths that produce low tones when the wind blows around and through them. So once again, this is in Seattle. I imagine that would also be very ominous sounding too. (laughs) Yeah, so I'm going to play that. And it... um, you wouldn't think of it as being a sound guard if you were driving by. I would just think that's probably like a lot of little cell phone towers or some, you know, um, some military project right. or something like that. Because uh, that's what it literally looks like. It's just they're pretty much like it just said, <laughs> towers. It kind of looks like what's that location that's up north? I think it might be like NORAD where it's kind of like conspiracy. Oh, the, the harp. <laughs> Maybe. Yeah, yeah, the harp one. And one so. that's like weather control and all that. <laughs> yeah, so, yeah, I believe that's the harp. It kind of looks like that. And it just, it looks like, uh, there's a bunch of things. It kind of looks like. They don't look the, like organ pipes. Yeah, they definitely certain. don't look like organ pipes. It kind of looks like our uh, rocket garden over at uh, the Space Coast over here. So there's just a bunch of little things stuck there. Or. Once again, cell phone towers. It also looks like um, the windmills, maybe, mm-hmm. not the top portion. But even some of the windmills are kind of like this because it looks like, if you can look at it real close, it looks like those things could flip at the top. But anyway, so this is the uh, 
the Sound Garden in Seattle. That sounds like. Kind of ominous as well. At least this one is a little bit more apt to <laughs> the musical side. <laughs> so there's that one. Okay, San Francisco, which is interesting since we've been there a couple times that we did not go see this, but the wave organ. However, we saw something very similar, and I want to say it was in Spain. In Bilbao? Yeah. Which we yeah. kind we saw it from afar, but you, other people can usually go up to it very close, and it does produce the, you know, musical sound of it. But it was like the section where we could walk up to was closed. Yeah, they were having a terrible storm when we were there. So, but anyway, so they have very something very similar to the Wave Oregon in San Francisco, but uh, the the winds off of the sea. And um, it basically, you know, comes in and the water and stuff underneath pushing the air through. Right. So so if you're in San Francisco, you can go visit that. Um, the gurgling noises come up, too. And then they also have a sea organ in Zadar. Where is that? Also a San Sebastian, not Bilbao. Oh, yeah, that's right. It is San Sebastian. Because it's a beach town. Yeah. So the sea organ and the coastal Croatian town of Zadar. Okay. It's got 35 um, organ pipes hidden under the concrete steps leading to the shoreline. So that's a really cool idea. Yeah. Um, so it's a little bit different than like we saw and what is in San Francisco where it's, you know, up above. But this is the sea organ of Zadar. I like that one. That's pretty. It's really cool how nature can create all this. Yeah. Of course, there's a little bit of help from people. Right. <laughs> but, you know, I'm sure they had to have heard it at one time just going through rocks that were naturally made to even come up with these ideas. The um, Another one, a lot of these are based on uh, tides and, and winds around oceans and mm -hmm. stuff like that. So there's one called the Blackpool High Tide Organ, and it's 15 meters tall. It was constructed in 2002 as part of the Great Promenade Show series of sculptures situated along Blackpool's new promenade in the UK. So attached to the seawall are eight pipes that are connected to 18 organ pipes underneath the promenade. At high tide, the swelling water pushes air up the seawall pipes and causes the organ pipes to sound. So all these kind of are the same idea, but the structure is a little bit different. And I think that's cool because, um, you know, it's so tall and uh, all these other ones are either built like right under the concrete or just smaller and down. But this one is really, really, really tall. So this is the Blackpool High Tide Organ. It sounds like a train horn. Or like a whale. <laughs> yeah, 
People can create some strange things. <laughs> this one I think fascinated me the most. Um, there's two that are similar, but uh, the funnel wall in Dresden. Now we never, we probably would have gotten to see this, but since uh, since we had to cut our uh, German trip German short. trip short because you were sick, um, we didn't get to go to Dresden. So, but there's actually literally a uh, neighborhood that has on the side of one of its huge multi-story buildings a bunch of funnels yeah and um so when the rainwater flows down from the gutters up above it makes noise okay and uh so the one thing is i didn't do any research because most of my stuff is coming you know off and i guess i should say i did a lot of research but you know i didn't do extra research a lot of my stuff is coming off of these so um in this amusing planet article they say that they um could not actually find an audio oh, of it. No. So, so um, if you guys can find an audio, you know, drop us a link and we'll add that as well. Um, and then the last one they talk about is the Windor Gel Lissingen. Uh, yeah. <laughs> it's in the town of Lissingen or Flushing in the, in the Netherlands, it says, but I would guess the Netherlands. And it's uh, bamboo tubes that allow for when the blo- wind blows through it. And it makes a noise. What's it called so, again? It's the wind. You just want to hear me say it again, right? Yeah. The Winder Gel or Winder Gel. W-I-N-D-O-R-G-E-L. Flissingen. V-L-I-S-S-I-N-G. Okay. My so. Dutch isn't kicking in at all. <laughs> I would guess it would probably be winds of that town then. And it is set out on a wharf or a pierce. Once uh-huh. again, it's using the sea. Um air and they do talk about um a sound sculpture at seal point san mateo california but they don't go into depth um about it the wind harp in south central uh, san francisco and the pod in portland oregon so those are some other ones that they talked about which uh what thing one thing that's fascinating to me about this is they are now incorporating this kind of stuff into playgrounds especially to be very diverse and sensory oriented mm-hmm. for um you know certain uh, certain kids and stuff so i have seen more and more of these sound playgrounds pop up mm-hmm. and um you know some of the things with wind some of the things that the kids are able to create the sounds so um i thought that was kind of cool that I, it probably came out of a lot of these sound structures which came out of nature to begin with so uh, you know when we think of a instrument we think of it usually created definitely by human and even these sculptures yes have been created by human but they need that nature to help them out so the human might create it but what's playing it is the nature right kind of cool so yeah definitely, definitely for uncommon instruments you know we don't think about those but they are instruments yeah there's um in san diego it is called what is it called it's like the i'll just go off of what i looked up the 25th street musical bridge it is a carbion carbion it is kind of like it's not the actual bridge but it is between the highway and between a sidewalk this entire railing has a bunch of I don't even know what they are. They're some kind of, you know, mechanical 
element to it where if you know like you're at a picket fence and you just keep smacking it as you walk by that's kind of what it sounds like okay but i've also kind of the articles aren't very positive towards any of the bridge sound because i guess with like the constant traffic it's just you know like a lot of wind and it's a lot of buzzing noise coming from it but i always thought it would be cool if you know we were over there to go check that out yeah that would be neat to be right there so i think you know we've sought out certain things and this isn't something i thought about but now maybe in our travels we can try to look up like instruments sound search yeah sound things um so the last thing with the whole uncommon instrument uh instrument awareness day uh the other things would be just everyday items. So this, you know, made me think about Stomp. Because mm-hmm. that really brought to light how you can really put on a full musical with just using everyday items. Right. And that, you know, that was really, really cool. But there is one. So I'm going to go back to that um, that other website I talked about. This is my last website. And it's... Uh, music in School? Yes. The Music in School one. And uh, they talk about the vegetable orchestra. Okay. <laughs> okay, so uh, once again, my quotes are coming from uh, the uh, musicinschooltoday.org site. And the vegetable orchestra is an Austrian musical group who use instruments made entirely from fresh vegetables. Okay, then. Their instruments, which are all of their own invention, include carrot recorders, clappers made from eggplant, uh, trumpets made from zucchini, and numerous others, which are amplified with the use of special microphones. The instruments are made from scratch just one hour prior to each performance. I was wondering (laughs) that. Yeah, how fresh they could be. Yeah. And uh, they use the freshest vegetables available. Then all 90 pounds of vegetables are cooked into a soup following the performance. That's cool. I know. So if you're definitely into uh, recycling and not wasting things, they do not waste it. So I had to play a little bit of it at the beginning, but they're kind of preparing all their instruments. What they did was they did an overlay of some of their music kind of Mm -hmm. over it. Um, So... You definitely will want to look them up. They have their own website, so it's uh, vegetableorchestra.org. But um, you can look them up on YouTube or um, not Venmo. Vimeo. Vimeo. Thank you. A lot of the um, a lot of the videos that actually I was finding that they were bringing in, you know, to these websites are from Vimeo. But go look them up or go to this particular website, musicandschoolstoday.org. And then look up their blog post on Happy Uncommon Instrument Awareness Day from last year, uh, last July 31st. It will have that Zeusophone uh, video on it, but um, it will also have this clip. So play a little bit of the vegetable orchestra here. If you watch the whole video, it actually takes them through the entire making, going and picking out the vegetables and how they make them. Do they have to go to, like, a specific market that they prefer? 
I, you know, I didn't really watch it. I, you know, didn't go into depth other than just watching this one. So. so this is a carrot flute. And what is that, cucumber? That is, I believe, a zucchini with a red pepper on the end. That's carrots. And that, I believe, is a potato that he's peeling. And this is the carrot flute again. That's a melon. <laughs> The flute's amazing. Yeah. Even like with a big carrot, I wouldn't think you could get enough space in the middle. <laughs> okay, so you can go to their site, um, vegetableorchestra.org, or visit the, the music site that we're on. But just really fascinating, and it shows exactly how they drill them and make, um, make them and stuff like that. I think it's funny. Like, I had the feeling that they could, you know, like, make the instruments just before because they could destroy them after. But I, <laughs> they were a lot more, um, not positive, but they were a lot more forward-thinking in how to reuse it. I was just like, oh, they can, like, smash it against stuff <laughs> at the end. You know, like go full rock star and break their guitar, break their carrot flute on the floor. Anyway, so the last thing, uh, that was pretty much all I had, but it led me to thinking too about what we thought was kind of an uncommon instrument when we uh, just got back from our trip to Canada and New York City. We were in Central Park and uh, we walked by a couple uh couple different musicians out there playing and it was very interesting sounding very um kind of asian sounding um and then you looked up the instrument that we saw right it turns out to be what is known as like an ahu i did not get the pitch correct it's chinese but it is also known as the two-string chinese violin and it it looks not like a violin. It has strings, right? But it kind of looks more like a bass to me because it's bigger and you kind of stand it up instead of uh, placing it on your shoulder. And the bow itself typically is made of horsehair. And the it's not the strings, but it is like the cover of the rest of the instrument so the rest of the instrument is wood right but to kind of get the vibrato out of it the sound they actually use python skin which is sad for pythons um and apparently they actually do make synthetic versions but they don't have the same kind of quality and tone but i thought they were really cool and i thought it'd be kind of cool to get one of those but when I actually went to my friend's house and I was just mentioning this, he was like, 
oh yeah, I have one of those. I'm like, wait, wait, wait. <laughs> you have what now? You have this Arhu? And so he pulls it out and shows me it. And, you know, there were notes being produced from a song. But I was kind of like, okay, I don't think I'm that interested now if I have to deal with a lot of screeching. <laughs> Sorry, Clyde. <laughs> <laughs> so, but even like if with um, our, our niece started a violin and it definitely is screechy when you're you're learning any like bowed instrument like that but yeah that was just a small world is really weird here we find this quote what we believe is an uncommon instrument i guess in probably china it isn't but probably not um and it was funny because there were two the musicians were in two totally different locations yeah, yeah of central park so it wasn't like i mean now maybe there was the same group but um but that was kind of interesting. So then we looked it up and then to come back to Florida and find out, you know, a friend actually has one. So anyway, but uh, really just to celebrate would be go find an uh, uncommon instrument, uh, everyday thing. Just have fun, be creative and make something out of everyday thing or just, you know, uh, it doesn't have to be uncommon. I know we're talking about uncommon instrument day, but go out and find any instrument that you would like to play and learn it. I would also add to the conversation of if you already have an instrument, find out if there's other ways to play that instrument. So like there's this guy who um, is really known for doing, you know, the ukulele shows. His name is James Hill and he has this it's like either one or two videos on youtube where he transforms a ukulele into an entirely different kind of instrument together so he makes it into a drum with percussions and he uses chopsticks to like go under the strings and makes it sound like an electric guitar or some other kind of electrified instrument at that so you know go look that up on youtube because like the first few minutes you're like oh yeah that's kind of cool whatever and then like he pulls out the chopsticks and start hearing these electric beats and at one point this might be another video too but it goes along with the percussions that he's really known for he basically has like the sound of three different instruments going on when he is doing an arrangement of bad by Michael Jackson. <laughs> and it's so cool. I love it. But yeah. So I will definitely have the links to all these because I know that I used some um, videos there and uh, had a lot of quotes. So please go visit the blogs, visit their um, videos, you know, support them. Uh, go out and definitely look at that vegetable one and the uh, the marble one, I think, is probably the coolest. You, you definitely have got to see it because it, it's neat sounding, but it's amazing to watch it. Yeah, and that machine did look really cool. Yeah. So for the next couple of weeks, we're actually going to be on hiatus. Like I said earlier in the episode, I'm going to be in San Diego. And, and I'm losing my uh, better half of the production here, so don't want to just make it solo. Right. So 
just to make everything a little bit easier on our part and bring you guys good quality shows when we get back, we are going to be off air for two weeks. So maybe go check out one of our other episodes if this is the first episode you're listening to. We have several prior to this on other holidays. So yeah, thank you again, guys, for listening. Thank you for joining us in our hop through these silly and strange celebrations. We'll be back again with another assortment of holidays to inspire new traditions. You can follow us at Don't Tell the Easter Bunny on Facebook and Instagram or Don't Tell the EAS1 on Twitter. And for emails, you can use Don't Tell the Easter Bunny at gmail.com. See, See you, you next time! time.